0: Hi all thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Steve Michio, who is the CEO of People USA. Thanks so much for being here, Steve.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Steve, I think the natural place to start is to tell about your start and how you became involved with People USA. Can you please tell us how you got there and what led to this and why this is all so personal to you?
1: Okay, um, just so you understand, People USA is a pure run organization, a nonprofit, and uh, it's an advocacy organization, or started out as an advocacy organization, and it advocated for people uh, that have mental illness, mental health issues, as we call it, um, and advocating in the community to get them quality services or better services, and. Uh, I came to find it through my own personal experience. I went through uh, years of just struggling with my behaviors, my moods. Um, I would be very manic at times, very energetic. Sometimes I'd be so depressed, I wouldn't want to get out of bed. And I just went through life like that and just figured, well, that was just life. Um, I did go to therapy every once in a while and, and they would recommend a, a medication or something. And I just, couldn't take the medications, they were so strong, and they just wiped me out and whatever. So I just kind of tried to figure out how to navigate my life, you know, just naturally, and and, uh, still not understanding what was going on with me. And it all came to a head once, uh, one day, when um, I was just so manic, I was driving I don't know where in the country I was driving, uh, why I was driving or what I was really doing, but I was just, I was not in New York anymore. And I managed uh, over the next like day and a half to get back to my home, because I just just kept getting confused and lost and whatever, but I hadn't been sleeping. Um, I was very energetic and very grandiose and argumentative and all those good things that come with a, a manic episode and uh, my brother brought me to the hospital after i had gotten home and that was the beginning of my experience of the mental health system in new york and so i went into the emergency room uh, a, a guard or a security officer came out immediately stood over me while i was in the general area then they moved me to the mental health area and that was locked and I sat there for you know many hours as, as unfortunately many people do in our country and when I was finally um seen by the doctor um it was a simple you're bipolar and you're going upstairs and that was my admission into the mental health unit uh now I was getting really scared because I was in a pretty good mood when I got there now <laughs> I'm getting really scared And I get to the unit and they come out immediately with a little cup and it had a few pills in it, different pills. So take this, here's your room, you know, and and in the morning, it was late at night by this time. And in the morning, we'll get up and we'll, you know, start program or whatever. And so that was my introduction to being diagnosed for the first time with bipolar disorder. And, and, you know, that, that was it, you're bipolar, you're upstairs, here's the meds, go to bed. And so through my stay at the hospital, I noticed it was just very marginalized and it really didn't do a lot, you know, or they expected you to sit in a room with a bunch of other people and share your innermost, you know, secrets or whatever was going on, you know, in your life. And it just was never a comfortable setting for me. And there was no mention of hope, no mention of recovery. And so I always tell people I went in the hospital with Steve Michio and I came of a mental patient. And that was just so hard to accept and to understand um, that I was depleted. And once I got out, uh, just after I had gotten a huge promotion in my job that I was doing, um, they came in and said, you have one of two choices, you can leave, or you can get demoted to just a, a general you know, worker. Um, so I knew stigma was alive. And I was like, well, I can't do anything about this, obviously, right now. So I quit um, and uh, uh, was hopeless, you know, at that point in my life. And so I knew I had to get, find work and whatever. So through this process of getting back to work and trying to navigate, I was on medication and just struggling with the medication and feeling, you know, I felt better in my head maybe, but I didn't feel good in my body. It was just really killing me and so I saw this sign once for a bipolar support group I'm like what the heck is that you know and and so that was my opportunity to go to it and I sat there and and every person it was like you know around almost like a 12-step program and then everyone would go around and talk about their experience or where they were in their life at that moment and I was every every word that came out of everyone's mouth was my words like, that's me that's me that's me you know like this is, I'm not alone. And that was the first thing I realized was I wasn't alone. That's where my glimmer of hope came from. It was Like, wow, I, I think I can, I can do something, you know? And so I worked on my recovery. I kept going to the groups. Um, I fought with my psychiatrist, you know, about the medication I won. Um, and, and we were just trying to find the right cocktail, I guess, at that point in my life. I, st- I wasn't off of meds yet, but I, you know, I continued with it. Um, but as I got stronger and, 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 uh, uh, you know, more hope and more self-determination, I started trying to understand more about the mental health system in New York. And, um, I was working another full-time job, but a a part-time job came up that was, they were looking for an emergency room screener for psychiatric care. And I applied for it. Didn't think I would get it, but I got it. And I was like, this is going to be great because I'm going to treat people so good when they come into this emergency room. And, you know, and I did, I learned how to steal the best food from the kitchen for them and how to make sure they were comfortable and how to just tell them, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you the whole process of what you're about to go through, where, you know, for me, I, I heard nothing from the emergency room, but from for them, they got to hear from me Now I have to call the doctor, I have to call the insurance company, I have to tell the nurse, I have to do whatever. So I was very informative with everybody that came through the door, and I could tell they appreciated it, and it helped them to feel calmer. So I knew I was on to something, I just didn't know where I was going to go with it, until this job for people came up, and they were looking for an executive director, and I applied for that, and after a series of interviews... Um, I got the job and I was just so excited to say, okay, now I can advocate for a better mental health system. What I didn't, I was so optimistic. What I didn't take into account was that discrimination was so strong in this field. (laughs) Nobody wanted to hear me. Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody wanted really much from me except to be, you know, the good little executive director that runs this peer run organization and just stay in your corner. And uh, that's something I couldn't do. So through the years, what I did with people is I created programs to show that there's a better way to treat people than tradition. And um, I got away with it. And as I got away with it, you know, the outcomes for the people we served were better than tradition. Um, but I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I still work with providers and with you know powers that be. Uh, but we advocated very strongly, and we showed people how we did things, why we did things differently, and that they worked. And it took a good, you know, seven years before people started to embrace what we were doing. And um, now it's just incredible. We're just highly recognized for the work we do because it is successful, and it's that's beautiful because now we can shift the paradigm, and that's what we're trying to do.
2: Wow, it's uh, it just. Uh breathtaking to kind of go through that experience, your personal experience, and then how you brought it into your your life and profession. Um, so, Steve, could you help help our audience understand a little bit of what are some of those things that make the system so much better that people have been able to advocate for in these last sure, years?
1: Sure, sure. One, one of the first things I did was I got a county and a hospital to agree to allow me to put my staff in their emergency room because I wanted people to be engaged in that real compassionate and and empathetic way. And I did it. And we were the first one, I think, in the country that did this. Um, And and it worked. At first, the hospital didn't know how to take it because they thought we were there to advocate and find out what they're doing wrong. I said, no, we're here to help you do things better. And that's the approach I took with it. Um, And it worked. And so the next thing I did was I created what we call respite houses i called it a crisis diversion house because i didn't want people to go to the emergency room anymore if they didn't have to i wanted them to come to my house which was like a bed and breakfast and give them that compassionate care when they come through the door lend a vision of hope when they come through the door find out what's happened to them not what's wrong with them we didn't care about diagnosis we just wanted to know why they were there and what they needed and help them for over the seven days that they would stay with us On learning different tools to address their crisis, so thinking of crisis differently for themselves, and we would help educate them on how to look at that differently and what tools they could use in the community, which could include tradition or it could include non-traditional, you know, things. Um, So those houses um, have now become extremely successful across the country in different parts of the world. Um, to where I've helped open now over 40, over 40 houses, because we just opened a couple more um, around the country, not enough, but it's getting out there, which is great. And people are starting to do it. Um, So that that we did, we did, you know, what I realized in the hospital that this was that discharge planning didn't work well for many people, they would be in the hospital for however many days they were, they would get a discharge plan and go home. But on that discharge plan, if they didn't have the money to get the medication they needed, they were going to fail. If they didn't have an appointment book to get to the first few appointments to the clinics or the follow-ups, wherever they were going, they weren't going to make, you know, they were going to end up back in the ER because they couldn't get there. If they didn't have transportation, that could be an issue. There were so many other factors in a discharge plan that aren't taken into account I decided to design something where we could go to the hospital with my staff and meet the people that were, they're called, I call people guests, but they call them patients in hospitals. They would meet the patients in the mental health units and build a relationship with them while they're staying there. And then say, hey, when you get discharged, I can take you home if you want me to. And on the way home, I can help get your medication. I can help make sure your house is in order you know, because you may have left it in disorder when you left, I can also call you to make sure that you can get your appointments, I can help you with all of the things on your discharge plan, and I will for as long as you want me to, and so we started doing that, and we actually saw a reduction in recidivism of people returning to the hospital because of that, and so we do that now as well, Um, We do care management in the organization. We do housing, uh, supported housing. So we provide two thirds of someone's rent and they only have to provide one third. And then we help them on life skills and employment or whatever it is they need in their quality of life. Um, We uh, then started to design the crisis stabilization center. And I was traveling throughout the country, you know, kind of just Talking about what we were doing, but I was also seeing services that were catching my eye, and these stabilization centers that I was seeing just kind of made sense to me. And they were, they were a little better than a hospital emergency room, but they weren't to the level that I wanted to see them. So I started designing the idea of, um, and it's almost like going to someone's house, you know, is what I thought would be better, similar to our Rose Houses, to our our respite houses. Um, where it's comfortable, where you're there, you know, it's engaging, it feels safe for everybody. And um, so then we opened the first stabilization center in the Northeast uh, back in 2017. And then a few years after the county was actually in control of that stabilization center, even though I designed it, a few years after we had been in operations as partners, They came to me and said, we're not good at this. Can you run the stabilization center, which I immediately embraced because it's a dream for me to do that. And we started making the changes to make that place even safer and more effective for people that would come to us. And now we're in the process of uh, opening two other stabilization centers here in the Hudson Valley in New York.
0: How important is the intangible of hope, the sign behind you and being able to treat these people with dignity and respect who may be very used to dealing with the stigma. So maybe they aren't acknowledging that they have a diagnosis. Maybe they haven't been diagnosed because you said it takes 10 to 14 years to get those diagnoses. So what is it like whenever these people walk into your doors, they've either come to you or somebody else has helped them get to you. And then they're greeted by other people who have gone through the same things and can provide that hope.
1: Yeah, it's for us. It's incredible. We love doing it. Um, My staff are so passionate about it. Um, But for the people that come through the door, if you've been in the system for years, their expectation is that we're going to be mean to them or that we're going to shun them or ask them to leave or whatever. Um, And when they get embraced, they get confused, like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing to me? I'm not used to this. Nobody's asked me about hope. Nobody's asked me about recovery or talked to me about that before. So we see this whole shift in people that come in um, and they, they do literally fall in love with us pretty quickly because they feel safe now. They feel like they can really be themselves. And that's the one of the most interesting things that we find is that when people are comfortable and they trust you, they tell you things that they probably aren't going to tell their psychiatrist or their therapist or, you know, whoever's in their, you know, in in their programs or whatever. And and so what we do with that information that they share is we say, that's really important what you just said to me. Did you ever tell your psychiatrist that? No, I'm not going to tell my psychiatrist. They'll put me back in the hospital. Like, no, we'll, we'll help you on how you can tell your psychiatrist in a safe way. So that you don't end up back in the hospital and we do that we help advocate with them when they go back to their treatment, but the information that we get is vital to the recovery. And we want the psychiatrist to know we want the therapist to know this information and not not use it against somebody use it with somebody so that you're ad- always advocating with the patient or the person you serve you're going to get much better outcomes when there's that level of trust and if there's not that level of trust you're going to continue to have that 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 consistent difficult dialogue or you know the the, uh, we hear too often you know people say well if they would just stay on the program you know they'd get better if they would just take their meds they would get better well did we ever have a discussion about the medication and what it does to me and how it can be used in a different way or how it can be used safer for me or you know, something like that. Those discussions don't happen in tradition all too often, but we have those discussions in our stabilization center in Rose Houses, and that's educational for us. But it's also educational for the people we serve in helping them find a better path for themselves.
0: This might be a—it's meant to be a shorter question. Hopefully, it's not uh, taking us <laughs> off a side road. But why? You know, a poor a doctor. So when he went into medicine, certainly he went into that to help other people. And you're doing this because you want to help other people. And I would assume the same for people who are psychiatrists and therapists. So, why aren't the people that you're serving feeling safe and like they can disclose anything to those people? Because they probably went into the field for good intentions as well.
1: I, you know, I believe they all, everyone's in there for good intentions, however, there's a power struggle there for some reason, and and that's, there's so many variables, I mean we could, this could be a very long answer, but, um, you know, the variables of the stigma of fear of mental health, not knowing the unexpected, what's that person going to do, are they dangerous, you know, there's still that danger that hangs over the, the title of, you know, even addiction and mental health. Um and And what we've constantly heard in our in my career and doing the work I do is what if they cut themselves when they go to the Rose house? What if they, you know, take drugs when they go to the stabilization center? What if everything was a what if in a negative way? And the way I approached it is, well, what if they love coming here and they share information and they start to feel really good when they come here? What if they start to share, you know things that from their traumas that they've never shared before? what if they just start to recover when they come here? You know, What if it's just a better place for them to be? And I think our traditional system doesn't think of that anymore because they've been so hardened by the challenges of the people that walk through their doors. We look at those challenges as strengths. We've, we figured out everyone that walks through, you could be the biggest pain in the butt in the community that everybody knows because you've been kicked out of every program we're the organization that will say, hey, they're really good because they've learned how to survive. They might piss a lot of people off, you know, get a lot of people angry, but they're surviving. And this and we want to work with that survival side. We want to work with the strength of that individual. And that's what we tell them. We're like, we're amazed that you're here. You know, we're, we're glad you're here, too. And again, those folks don't know how to take that because they're like, like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, everyone else throws me out. You're not going to call the police on me? No, we're not. So it's it's just that different approach and the different perspective of, of who you serve.
2: It feels like uh, the system has become subverted. Uh, I, I, I would almost say perverted because what it's designed for with all the best intentions, unfortunately, it's not able to deliver since yeah. at, by the time the people get into the system, unfortunately, they've become systematized uh, unfortunately, a lot of the compassion and empathy as we were talking in the pre-interview that that we should be bringing into our our clinicians is often wrung out of the clinicians during their their training process uh, because it can be so so, so challenging. And unfortunately, I think it's also because we've become risk averse. and you know, as you said, what if something bad happens and people are not willing to think about what if something good happens? Because yeah. we, we're almost now become used to operating on the risk paradigm. And then, I, and, and then as you've been talking, Steve, I think probably one of the most es- essential things that's been reverberating for me is this idea of time. We just don't give our clinicians enough time because yeah. they're in this transactional mode. Uh, they've got to diagnose and they've, and they get paid for that and somehow, unfortunately, that winds up subverting the whole mechanism. So do you want to comment a little bit on how you see time playing out? And why are you able to do it differently? Do you get, you know, compensate differently? Or Um, how how are you turning this on the head?
1: Yeah, Um, well, we're, we're, we were fortunate that we didn't have to worry about Medicaid, and, you know, those, those kinds of rules that go behind it, you know, having the medical note, and the medical model, and, you had to measure your time, you know, 15 minute increments and things like that. And so we had the beauty and the luxury of taking our time. So we were funded differently when we first started all of this, however, it became so popular and so embraced by the state that they're now licensing it and it's moving into Medicaid. And my first thought was, oh, no, now we're not going to have time to spend with our, you know, our guests. Um, So I hired consultants to come in and teach us, first of all, Medicaid, also teach us how to do the notes properly, how to do everything properly, get the electronic health records ready. But then I said, I want to learn it like we're eighth graders or even fifth graders. And I want it that simple so that we can give the people we serve the time they deserve. And we don't have to worry so much about the documentation. So I already, you know, without having medicaid you know in our system you know in our in our organization i can start from scratch and i can start a whole new philosophy around it and that's what we've done and um our care management program which is medicaid our first medicaid driven program um, many other managed care organizations in new york do it telephonically so they have so many people on their caseloads they can't possibly see everybody I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do face to face. And I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how much time it takes. And through our doing it, the engagement was better. The outcomes are better for people, and we're not losing any revenue because of it. So I immediately embraced that instead of saying, we're going to go back to the telephone or we're going to do the telephonic, you know work. We don't have to. So my role is to, as a leader, I think, is to, design it, and uh, utilize it more effectively and efficiently so that the staff can take the time to spend with everybody that walks through the door.
2: One of the things that you had mentioned uh, in our pre-interview was this idea of helping people work through their ambivalence. And um, we commented on it because, you know, it's often an issue for all of us, and yet very few of us are really trained in terms of understanding how to deal with it and I think that's another thing that tends to snuff out hope or snuff out time is the sense that I've got to get to the other side of ambivalence very quickly. Yeah. So I, I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about how do you how do you help uh, your 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 colleagues and your, your uh, patients uh, work through their ambivalence?
1: yeah um well the that's the other piece of it is when you engage and you build that trusting relationship immediately people will share more information than they traditionally would and so when people come in and say i'm suicidal or i'm homicidal that i'm so angry i want to kill somebody um we'll say you know what it's you're talking about it that means there's ambivalence in there that means that there's reasons for killing or reasons for dying and there's reasons for living and reasons for being safe and a good person let's talk about those both sides let's get into the ambivalence and have that discussion and we use motivational interviewing to do that and you know when you when you start to build the list and they start to hear themselves saying these things they they, everybody realizes for the most part what wow i can't believe i was even thinking that And then you can move to the safe side of ambivalence, you know, at that point, but it can't be done until that person is ready for it. You can't force it. And I think what happens in our world and our societies is that we try to force ambivalence by either not talking about it or shutting it down through aberrance or through, you know, restrictions or whatever it is, you know, that, that people do. And we welcome it instead. And I think that makes a huge difference for the people that we serve because they've never been, you know, free to really discuss it without some kind of ramification of, you know, a negative outcome. And they don't get that with us. They get very positive outcomes. They get, you know, praised on their strengths and and for talking, you know, about the ambivalence. And we thank them for that. And so that I think is is huge in you know really lending the vision of hope for somebody when they hear that then they're like well there is hope for me and um and, and it just works really well in all of our different services
2: so powerful thank you sure
0: in your decades with people usa you've worked with so many people both on the staff and who have come through your doors and you've become tremendously successful at what you do and you've been helping with centers all over the US you've been coordinating with government and other groups And then you you also work with, um, you're on some criminal justice boards. And so how does that experience where you've both been in a situation where you've been treated negatively because of a mental illness that you had, and then seeing the positive recovery and then helping these people, how does that help you help other people understand that recovery is possible? That it's not just, I have bipolar, I have schizophrenia, whatever, I'm beyond help. How do you help the people from the criminal justice boards understand that there's a way to deal with people more effectively? And also your, your clients, your guests understand that this isn't it for them. They aren't the diagnosis.
1: Yeah. Well, I, th- I think you know the empathy is important on all sides. So you have to understand where a police officer is coming from or where the traditional system is coming from, what they've been through, because everyone's been through their own stuff, their own experiences. And if you if you hit it head on, you know, as an advocate saying, you're wrong, I know what's right and what, you're not going to get anywhere. If you hit it by saying, would you feel comfortable with your son or daughter or your loved one coming through these doors? No, I wouldn't. Well, then let's change the conversation, how we can make it a better place for everybody. And that's the approach I take with everybody and everything I do. And when you ask the right questions, you get better answers. And people start to realize, wow, I never thought of that before. And, and that's that's how I've learned to move the system. So I'm a little sneaky where I will observe in meetings for hours and listen and listen intently with everybody in the room. And then usually at the end of the meetings is when Steve Michio speaks. And it's like usually one or two sentences that says, you know, I'm hearing everyone say this. Why don't we try this? Because it sounds like everyone wants to get there, but we can't figure out how, let's try this way. Is everyone okay with that? Why wouldn't you be okay with this? You know, And so that's how I've gotten many systems to actually shift and, and move in a better direction.
2: It's almost like you're helping the organizations uh, understand uh, their ambivalence and, and maybe yeah. arrive at a point where they're not so hard edged and thinking they already have the answers. And that allows them to then move from that ambivalence. So uh, I'm learning a lot from this process. Uh, hopefully, it'll make me a, a better consultant and 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 um, and uh, coach. Uh, but you know, do do you want to make any comment about that?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, um, it's just been such a great learning experience for me to to learn to observe and learn to listen. And, and again, through that process, I think. You know, you're building a kind of a new science out of uh, you know shifting sh- shifting communities, you know, and and their thought process. And the other side of it is that I don't I don't just talk about it; I show it. So I that's why I got into the services and the business so I could say, you know, I could talk about this till I'm blue in the face, but come visit me. And when people come visit, they walk out saying, "We got to do this." And so there's there's a couple components that I've learned to infuse into communities to get them to shift. And, and that's that's part of it.
0: Is there any specific instance that you can think of that you thought, holy cow, I just changed the trajectory of this person's life or of you said sometimes people say they want to harm themselves or harm others. Are there, you know, any times that stick out to you that you're like, whoa, that was it.
1: There's many, there's been many times, because I've done a lot of um, training, I've done a lot of education in, you know, day treatment programs, and, and you know, all different kinds of, you know, venues and events and, and uh, places. And sometimes many people will come up to me and they'll say, you know, that one day when you said, why are we okay with this? My, I just, I thought about my life, I thought about everything differently, and I started changing the way I live, and here I am today. So, and it's not, it's many different, you know, I'm, I'm full of these little sayings that come out of my head. I don't know where they come from, but those are the things that have helped people to actually embrace recovery. And so I've, I've been really fortunate to hear from a lot of people that have said that that it's, you know, the work we've done has made that difference in their life.
0: Thank you so much for being here and sharing this conversation. It's really spectacular what you're doing.
2: Thank you. So powerful. Yes. Blown away. Thank you, Steve, so much.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.